0: This is the AI Health Podcast, where we explore the ways in which AI will transform healthcare, biotech, and medicine through conversations with entrepreneurs, investors, and scientists.
1: Hey, I'm your co-host Pranav Bokar.
0: And I'm Adrielle Saporta.
1: And you're listening to the AI Health Podcast. Today, we'll be talking with Tom Simonite, a senior writer at Wired, covering AI and its societal impacts. He's been covering different angles of deep learning for nearly a decade, and was previously the San Francisco bureau chief at the MIT Technology Review. This past June, he wrote Wired's cover article on the controversial exit of one of the co-leads of Google's ethical AI team.
0: We'll be talking about how AI coverage has changed as it becomes familiar to a broader audience and migrates from research labs into our daily lives in new ways. We'll talk about the importance and challenges of explaining fundamental concepts in machine learning to non-scientific audiences, and some of Tom's strategies for asking the right questions. And we'll hear about some of the aspects of AI reporting that he finds most rewarding and most frustrating.
1: I think this will be fun. Of course, we'll be focused on applications to healthcare. For example, how a dermatology classification algorithm influences doctors' decisions in real practice, and how a recent recommendation to remove race from a longstanding equation used to diagnose chronic kidney disease could affect thousands of patients. We'll also be touching on some of Tom's work in other domains like facial recognition in schools and AI contracts from the Pentagon. Tom, thank you so much for being with us today on the show. Thank you for having me. So you're a senior writer for Wired covering artificial intelligence and its effects on the world. Borrowing the words from one of my favorite films, Zoolander, AI in the news is so hot right now. So I'd like to start us off by asking you to share with us a day in your life. What does that look like?
2: Probably like a lot of people, my day often starts on Slack, where far too many things happen. You know, we bat (laughs) around ideas here among Wired writers and look at what's going out in the world. What I like to spend most of my time doing is reporting, you know, talking to people about work they're doing, things they've noticed, things they're worried about that they think need more attention. I get ideas from reading research papers, or sometimes going to conferences, or looking at what people are fighting about on Twitter. And I think the most important part of any journalist job is yeah, reporting these things out, following up on things and talking to people. Then you have to write as well. And that's the part journalists often joke about that they hate. Um, (laughs) But that's a necessary part of the process if you want to get your story out there.
0: Could you maybe just tell us a little bit how you got into AI and covering AI in in this space? I really started
2: covering AI, particularly machine learning, deep learning a lot in around 2012. And at that time, I worked at MIT Technology Review, which is a great magazine everyone should subscribe to right after they subscribe to Wired. And I was based in San Francisco and leading our coverage of the new ideas and technology coming out of the computing industry, uh, both big companies, startups and computer science labs. Yeah. And around 2012, people started to talk about neural networks all of a sudden, which was a technology I'd heard about before, but it was sort of in the past. People weren't using it so much. And that was the beginning of this, you know, the deep learning explosion and reporting on New application of machine learning just took up more and more of my time. And now that's kind of the main thing I do. (laughs) And over that time, it's been interesting to see how the work of covering AI has shifted a little bit. You know, in the early days, there was a lot of research and explaining to help people, the general public or people in any industry really like understand why people are suddenly excited about neural networks again, what's going on. And now over time, this technology has really been deployed a lot, you know, in our phones, in all kinds of services and gadgets and is being used in government. And so now there's a big thread to our reporting, which is covering you know, what happens when people launch this stuff into the world. You know, what great things does it do for us? What weird things does it do to us? Sometimes it can do bad things. But I suppose in some ways that's a familiar story about any technology similar to the internet or e-commerce. You know, in the beginning, it starts out as a speculative idea. You just need to try and get your head around. And then it slowly becomes more and more of your reality and this big force in society.
1: Yeah. I remember when uh, the acronym AI used to be preceded by artificial intelligence, uh, the term and now we just say AI and DEL, and I read about this in news articles without sort of further expansion. I want to ask about how you describe AI to the layman. You mentioned how you know, this has become a technology that uh, more and more people have now recognized as an important tool. And I was curious what level or what layer of explanation you now provide to the readers? The term
2: AI is is interesting, isn't it? The way it's become so normalized. I, I think there's still a strand in the academic community that doesn't like the term AI. And I, I, there's a strand in me that doesn't like it because it's a term that is, it comes with a lot of baggage because of most people are familiar with it from science fiction. And there's a way of talking about AI as if it's like an autonomous entity, you know, an AI did this. And I think just for clarity, it's better to try and avoid it sometimes and just talk directly about what's happening and what's usually happening is like a piece of software is taking in some data and then making some determination and spitting out a number or a decision or a prediction and that is used to do something. So I suppose my general aim is usually to try and be clear about what is actually happening and not use the term AI as just this sort of magic box that does things. In terms of layers of explanation, it's not possible in every story to explain the foundations of deep learning and how that works. We have like a long sort of guide to artificial intelligence and machine learning that we link to a lot so that if people want to explore a bit more how it works. They can click through to that. How do you feel about the term AI? I'd be interested to hear each of you reflect on that.
1: Well, we are called the AI Health Podcast.
2: <laughs> uh, I guess that's an endorsement.
1: So... At some point, we did decide that that was the term that was going to capture the interest of our listeners. And as people who've both worked on what we call AI research, I think it has received an endorsement from, from at least me. There, there are these uh, conferences where people have these circles that they describe of AI being the biggest circle and inside that machine learning and inside that deep learning. That's one interesting way of sort of making a classification distinction. But I think in most circles, especially when we're looking at a lot of AI health, the inside circle and the outside circle are fully intersected. Wow, that was a lot of math.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But I am curious, Tom, because even sort of in an everyday basis, talking to friends about what I do at work or the research that I've done, I find myself struggling with sort of when the right time is to go deep and sort of explain what is happening on a technical level and when I can stay high level? Because sometimes I feel like so much of the nuance is missed when you stay too high level, when you're talking about about AI. And so how do you make that trade-off? I know you mentioned that there's a guide that you point people to, but that must be sort of a, a constant struggle while you're writing.
2: Yeah. I mean, in some ways that's maybe the primary challenge and kind of attraction of writing about technical subjects i guess that's why i keep doing it is trying to strike that balance and help people have that understanding is i think it's important for society and it's it's nice if you can help people do that the depth and the nuance of machine learning it is relevant to people and there are times when you do have to explain it and so one example i suppose that comes up in medicine a lot is this concept of a machine learning model that might be biased or like how accurate can it be for different people in a population? And that can be hard to explain unless you walk people through, you know, how does training machine learning work? And this idea like, okay, well, you have a training set that will have a particular distribution of people in it. And then the, that distribution will condition what the model is capable of doing on another population. And, you know, explaining this concept of accuracy outside of the training distribution can be extremely unpredictable and just very brittle. Right. And You could say that's like taking people into the weeds, but I actually think that's core to understanding some of the main challenges that people are working on in AI and health. And I also think it's actually quite intuitive if you walk someone through it. I tend to think that most people, whatever their background, can be helped to understand pretty much anything if you find the right way to explain them to it. And in healthcare or any area where AI is being applied, I think it Probably the best approach for people working on this technology is to be as open as they can and try as hard as they can to explain how things are working and not assume that people can't understand it or or don't need to know.
0: I love hearing that because I do think that even in industry, there feels like there's this divide between people who are technical and people who aren't technical. And there's sort of this assumption where if you're not technical, you're just never going to get it, you're not going to understand. And if you really take the time to explain something, even just five minutes of of sort of a really thoughtful explanation can be enough time to really get across the main sticking points.
1: So you've written articles at the intersection of AI and medicine, which is a very exciting intersection and application area of AI. I'd love to hear about one of the stories you've covered and take us through the process of how you went about writing that story.
2: We could talk about a story I wrote last week, which I'm kind of cheating here because it's not really about AI, but I think it has some of the themes that come up a lot in AI and health. So I'm talking about an article I wrote about the two leading professional societies for kidney care nephrology in the US. After a year of work, a special task force they pulled together to review a particular equation used in nephrology to estimate kidney function, they came forward and said, "Okay." Everyone needs to stop using this equation and we need to use a different equation. And the reason for that is that the standard equation that has been used for decades in nephrology uses a person's race to adjust their estimated kidney function. And so there are effectively two versions of the equation. It uses the value from a blood test for creatinine, which is a waste product in the body, in your blood and uses your age and uses your sex. And then if you're black, your score gets boosted by about 15%. And if you're not black, it doesn't. And this score is used to classify the severity of kidney disease. It's very standard. And starting in around 2018, 2019, quite a lot of people in the medical establishment started to become a bit troubled by this and really question the use of race in this equation. Now, this equation is being used to make a numerical estimate from a physiological measure of something that's in your blood. So, why would you put race, which is a social category, in there? I've written about this a few times, you know, about people protesting about it. Elizabeth Warren and some other Democratic senators were very worried about this and expressed some concern last year. And I think it's a really interesting tangle of some issues that come up around AI health projects. You know, this is a simple formula, but there are features of this sort of tail which come up in other situations when sort of technical artifacts are put into medicine and numbers you know there's an attempt to use a data-driven strategy so this equation was created the way it's created because it was useful to have a way to estimate kidney function some researchers got a bunch of data from a bunch of patients and tried to come up with an equation that would work well to predict this value and the nature of the data they had it worked better if they added this race thing in there and so they did that and everyone used it and then more recently and this was a movement in part started by a bunch of medical students who were being taught this for the first time and in class and were sort of surprised they put their hands up like wait a second why are we doing it this way and that sparked more people to think about this and um yeah last week finally the kidney societies they did a big review they said okay we're going to stop doing this and they derived a new equation that doesn't use race, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And now the recommendation is that people switch. And now there'll be this interesting process, which, again, I think you see in a lot of AI projects is like, okay, how quickly can a medical specialty adapt and adopt a new tool? And what will the consequences of that be? Because patients have had their care guided by the output of this particular equation. And maybe some people will be classified differently now. study last year that analyzed health records for about 50,000 people with kidney disease found that a good chunk of black patients, I think around a third, would have been classified as having more severe kidney care if they had been assessed with the version of the algorithm for non-black people versus black people. So there may be people who didn't make it onto transplant lists because of this thing was used. And so now health systems are sort of faced with this tricky thing of like, okay, how do we go back and review everyone's care?
1: I really like this example. the The use of these decision making tools, these risk equations that take race into account, isn't just limited to kidney disease. There's a bunch of different areas, and this movement towards race free equations has not only been a topic of conversation for the traditionally derived equations, but also for The newer machine learning models that people have been developing. So very much at the core of some of these conversations around the use of AI risk prediction models as well. Now, when you're covering a space like this, there are many stakeholders. You've got patients who are going to be affected. You've got physicians whose decision-making is going to be affected. You've got those writing the New England Journal of Medicine paper, how do you go about synthesizing all of these different perspectives? Do you even attempt to synthesize all of them? Do you decide, no, I'm just going to focus on this particular one? And I imagine you have time pressure in terms of needing to report on something when publication is coming out or has come out. So how do you go about thinking about this process?
2: Yeah, it's a a lot of plate spinning, I suppose. (laughs) To your first point, I mean, when you... A reporting out story, of course, you need to hear as many voices as you can from different sides and make sure that people have a right to reply if one person in your story is making claims about them. But you aren't trying to write the definitive synthesis of of all angles. You you know, you have to try and pick the thread that you can explain to people and, and that will matter to them. One thing that is interesting about covering the AI and health space is trying to talk to people from all the different places in the healthcare sort of ecosystem that interact with this technology and the outcomes of it i found it very interesting when i've been able to talk with people on the front lines nurses for example i did a story last year about this program called sepsis watch which was a sepsis prediction algorithm that was being tested at some Duke health systems you know it was developed by researchers who didn't work in the hospital and then they had to over to the hospital and then there was this team of nurses who were getting these alerts and it was fascinating talking to someone on that team because she was on the front lines in this very new but perhaps soon to be common situation where there was an algorithm telling her stuff And then she was the sort of translator and interpreter and ambassador who had to go to these emergency department doctors and explain like, okay, so the system says this person may get sepsis really soon and we need to act on that. And then she would sometimes get pushback from the doctors and it really provided this window into this sort of like live adaptation process where the people and the software are really in this sort of like strange tangle (laughs) circling around each other. And then all these very human processes took place. And at the end of it, hopefully the care has changed for the better. And uh, this being medicine, we still won't know for sure if lives are being saved because it will take a long time to study
0: it. In either of the scenarios that we've discussed so far, has there been a situation in which an article you've written or even just work at Wired in general has sort of enacted change or caused the system to change in in a substantial way
2: yeah yeah i think so i mean i broke a story about a startup called clarify that was working on a pentagon ai project called project maven which caused a lot of controversy at google and this company had a small piece of that turned out that some employees there were concerned because they had a security breach and there was some worry that maybe the Pentagon project was part of that. I, you know, I think stories like that, they're inconvenient for a company and kind can of shake them up. But I think that led to some responses on the Pentagon side and probably how that company handled its work going forward.
0: When you put out a story like that, like, are they just breathing down your neck then afterward? Or are they sort of hitting you with tons of emails, trying to sort of say that why your story was wrong. And
2: well, when you, when well, the proper way to do a story like that is, you know, anytime their accusation made against company, you have to give them the chance to respond. So there was a process beforehand, but yeah, you know, there can be some heated conversations, let's say, you know, more broadly, I think why it has been cited in Congress during hearings with Facebook executives and others, you know, we had a couple of big cover stories on that. I, I think Perhaps more than ever, the technology coverage is not just for people who are into tech, but, you know, we're helping explain and explore some of the most important forces in society. And so, yeah, our reporting is probably getting cited in more congressional reports than it used to as people in Congress and other parts of society try and figure out what's going on in the world. As it becomes bigger, AI healthcare may be drawn into some of those sort of policy and regulation conversations as as well, I suppose.
0: What role do you think that journalism plays in shaping the future of AI and health? And maybe how has that changed over the course of the last 10 years?
2: I don't know if anyone's been covering AI and health for 10 years yet, but (laughs) um, I think they certainly will be 10 years into the future. So as you and your listeners well know, we're very much in the early stages of AI in healthcare, right? It's the thin end of the wedge, but it's going to get a lot wider, a lot faster. And I think tech journalism coverage of that is going to be the first draft of history. It's going to be the first way that a lot of people learn about what's going on with AI and health. And probably there will be some mishaps and maybe there'll be some great success stories as well. Journalism is probably going to be the way that you know, a large part of society finds out what is going on. And that is going to play into changes to regulation, changes to policy, changes to
1: societal attitudes, I I think. When you're covering something at the intersection of AI and health, I imagine you're talking to people with different backgrounds, those who are on the tech side, those who are on the medicine side, those who are on the regulation side. Do you find that there is consistency in terms of how they think about AI?
2: One of the reasons that AI and health is so interesting is that you do have these people coming from different places. And I think there are often disconnects in how they think. And that is a sort of challenge that people know they're explicitly working through. One of the most obvious, I suppose, is there are a lot of computer scientists with machine learning experience who are suddenly working on health projects and don't have a lot of context about healthcare. That's fine. It's not like they shouldn't be, but it just means that projects sometimes have to go through these stages where you know a system or an idea that makes a lot of sense in the context of an academic CS department has to comport with the reality of the healthcare system and there's a lot of translation and explanation and understanding that goes on and I'm guessing that that is one reason why people find it so so satisfying to work in this area would the two of you say that, that, you know, you do have this coming together of expertise and there's a sense that this can be a like additive or multiplicative process that if you bring together these different perspectives that haven't been combined, you, you make something better. For sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's definitely what I love most about working in this space is this, this sense of collaboration. We can't do anything in a silo without working with people who are real experts in this space. And I, I think that's much more exciting than sort of staying in our own little AI bubble.
2: <laughs> right, might be interesting to hear you reflect on this, but a common pattern I've noticed a little bit is in the world of machine learning research, you know, there's this like train test benchmark sort of pipeline, it's very standard. You know, you get some training data, you get the model to predict the thing and you have some test data and then you report how well it does and that's, that's great. That's like the validation of your system and you can get some publications and maybe tenure based on that, great. But in medicine, you know, like the real, the real world testing is so hard and takes a long time. And so sometimes you talk to people who have more of a medical research background about some paper that's developed a machine learning model based on some retrospective data and reported a certain level of accuracy. And maybe there's some attempt to compare to humans and came out really well. And, you know, the Grizzle medical research will just look at that and say, they're doing what? Like, that's not going to work. It seems to me that a lot of promising things in AI and health are sort of, they need to cross the chasm between those two things. And so maybe dermatology is a good example. There have been so many amazing papers on retrospective data showing that you can train a model to identify different types of melanoma or whatever it is with really high accuracy. But how you put that in the clinic, how people react is really confusing. And I wrote about a study last year where they did these sort of human factors studies with dermatologists and, you know, they gave them the system that would make recommendations of what something was. And then they watched to see how often people would change their diagnosis. And there was some really complex effects, you know, for the really expert dermatologists, having the software on hand actually made them worse at making diagnoses because they would doubt themselves. For the trainees, it made them better. And then there's some like crossing point in the middle where it's like, you need to not use the software maybe. No real clear answers came out of that. It's like, oh, well, how are we gonna operationalize this? It's very tricky.
0: I love that expression, the idea of crossing the chasm, because you're absolutely right that whenever you're dealing with AI and health, implicit in that is that it's applied. There, you're actually hoping that whatever work you're doing in the space is actually going to reach patients one day, and you, and and that's a very very different battle than just you know publishing a paper into the void of academia and and then you know hoping it may help one day. You actually actually working with clinicians, with patients, making sure that things are actually interpretable, like all all of these sort of different factors that aren't necessarily as important in other domains.
1: Yeah. I think it's a technology that's yet to mature. And if you think about all the components and expertise that are required to take something from scratch, people who understand how to build algorithms is one component, people who understand how to collect data effectively is another component. People who know how to set up clinical trials is another component. People who understand how these technologies are gonna be used is another component. So if you think about sort of the the number of expertise um, domains required here to get something to work, then it isn't so surprising that this progress has been um, tougher than previously anticipated. Uh, With that being said, I'm very hopeful. And, you know, we talk with a lot of people on the show whose uh, efforts have shown uh, there is hope for the future of this intersection. I want to ask you about something along those lines, which is, I really admire journalists such such as yourself able to learn about something so fast. You are talking to people who speak very different languages, very different domains of expertise who are sort of coming together, offering their perspective. How do you think about combining those different expertise together in terms of the kinds of questions you ask or the kinds of iteration you have in terms of putting out a story?
2: Through practice, you know, interviewing people from so many different areas of expertise and backgrounds, you just have to become pretty good at asking questions and listening to people and nudging them to explain stuff to you in a way that makes sense. And I suppose the primary tip I would offer is that sometimes the questions that seem the most stupid are actually the most important to ask. There's, I think there's a tendency for anyone, doesn't matter what job or situation they're in. You know, when you're talking to someone who knows a lot about something you don't know that much about, there's a feeling that you've got to sort of show them that you're smart and you're with it. And maybe you would try and sort of hide what you're unsure about, but if you have to turn around and explain something to someone, then that you can't do that. You just got to come out and ask the most stupid question you've got and make sure that you understand it.
1: I want to ask you about how you go about finding what to write about. So let's say, you know, today you decided to cover something new. What would it be about and what would your, your first steps be?
2: Oh, that's a very interesting question, Pranav. Thank you. So there are so many ways to find a good story. You know, talking with as many people in the area you're interested in is, of course, very important. Attending events, that's virtual these days. Sometimes you just get curious about something and go and start poking around and look into it. I mean, one example, a fairly large story I wrote not that long ago about the use of facial recognition in schools. I just heard, I saw a company mention it, I think on a bit of marketing material that they were interested in the education market. And I just started thinking like, well, people are actually using this in the schools. And anyway, then I did a big search of like regional local press across the US, like mentioning it because they often do school board reports and found a surprising number of public school districts that were spending money on facial recognition. And then I was able to reach out to some of the schools. I actually went to visit one and got to see the system in action and... When I was down there in this Texas town, I also managed to find through some local Facebook groups, someone who had got like added to the school's facial recognition system after a confrontation at a kind of evening event. And so it turned into this much bigger and richer story just because I kept poking around and making phone calls. That's the secret.
0: Are there tendencies in the way that AI is reported currently that you think are, mistakes or that you wish you could fix but are there sort of like habits that you see when ai and health or ai and health separately are reported that frustrate you as a journalist
2: and there are hazards that face all of us covering this technology you know certainly wired isn't immune some of them for me come back to the conversation we had about the term ai itself so you no know, implying that ai software is like autonomous or saying the ai did this and giving that suggestion that it's sort of an independently intelligent entity, I think can really mislead people as to what is really going on hmm. when things go wrong in AI coverage it's often about not being clear about what the technology is capable of and not capable of. And so being clear that machine learning isn't like human learning, right? It's this crazily narrow process that's highly engineered where you've taken like a particular slice of data and told the system to like focus on that. And that produces something that's very narrow in its own capabilities. Not being clear about that can really make people confused, I think. In AI healthcare in particular, it's just so tempting to make comparisons and draw parallels between what the system does, the prediction the system makes, the knowledge the system has, the diagnosis the system makes, and the processes people are familiar with where a human doctor or expert makes predictions of risk or diagnoses, right? Because pretty much in no AI healthcare system that people are building today is the the system doing anything like what we understand the human doctor to do. And yeah, if you're not clear about that, then you can lead people astray or they can get confused or because of the knowledge we have about what AI is from sci-fi, you can just get mixed up. And I think that's to the disservice of your, you know, readers and people working on this stuff and society as a whole, because if we can't enable people to think independently and clearly about AI software in any sphere of life, the future is going to be a dark place. Because this stuff's going to be everywhere, so you're going to need to think about it, whether or not you realize you're thinking about AI. You know, you, you're going to be able to need to make decisions in a world that's shaped by it. Journalists, researchers, all of us, really. That's That's our task is to help people get ready for that.
0: I like that you emphasize that it's all of our task. I think I'm guilty of that too, of sort of anthropomorphizing systems, AI systems, when I shouldn't, even to myself sometimes. So I think it's an important lesson for for all of us in the space.
2: Yeah, well, that's interesting. I mean, it is a natural human tendency. It's just like a feature of how our brains have evolved, isn't it? And it's part of how we think. And then sometimes companies sort of lay little traps for us, you know, if you give your AI system, a name, human name, Hmm, then you're already pointing people in a particular way. And, you know, maybe if it's something like Alexa, then that's okay. It doesn't matter. People can think about that. But you do see sort of branding in the AI healthcare space where things get sort of anthropomorphized a little bit. And is that a good idea? I don't know. It could lead to some tricky confusions or misunderstandings.
0: I guess maybe, Tom, you are probably unique in being very well versed across many different areas of expertise. And if you had maybe one message that you could give to readers of this space, not necessarily experts, but sort of maybe the layperson who who might be reading your articles, what message would you give in terms of what they should be thinking about more?
2: Yeah, it's um, a little bit uncomfortable giving people direct advice that way. But um, I suppose one thing I would say, I'll come back to the comment I made earlier about the power of explanation and the importance of that. I mean, I I do think that in a way, this has been a failing of the medical establishment and other technocratic institutions in society for centuries, which is the assumption that you don't need to tell people what you're doing or that people can't understand it or they don't deserve an explanation. We as a society are still grappling with the consequences of not being transparent about so many old practices and technology already, like, we don't need to add another set of problems like that. So yeah, <laughs> let's be transparent and open about using AI in any sphere and explain people how it works and give them the chance to question that and make it more open.
0: That's a great note to end on. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it.
1: Thank you. I enjoyed it. And that's all, folks. A big thank you to Tom Simonite for talking to us today. And thank you for listening. We're your hosts, and Adriel, and until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.
0: The AI Health Podcast is produced and edited by Oishi Banerjee and Mark Robbins. Music by Ethan A. Chi. If you like what you just heard, let a friend know. Subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify or connect with us on Twitter at AIHealthPodcast.